Yes, many thanks both for the uh, original invitation and for that welcome. Yes, I do feel very much at home here, which is lovely. Now, this is a demanding topic, even if we had given the whole series aside simply for this topic. And uh, I struggle to know what to include, what to exclude here, because it's such a vast field. What bioethics comprehends, I'll come to in a second. But let's have our old friend, very old friend Hippocrates, up here. More about him later, but you've heard of the Hippocratic Oath, many of you. Uh, we don't know his exact dates, but a remarkable character, a remarkable influence, whether or not he was actually responsible for the oath, I suppose we can't be sure, although I'm not on top of the very latest scholarship on that. But here we have a pagan figure who's had a massive influence on Christian thought. That of itself, I think, is extremely, extremely interesting. So, there he is. He's starting off for us. But now let me move on to a second slide. I don't have many slides at all, uh, but let me move on to the second one. This is young Tony Bland, Hillsborough Stadium disaster, still being talked about. Sheffield, 1989. Liverpool against Notts Forest, I think it was. And there was a crush... And young Tony was a Liverpool, I think, supporter. And uh, as a result of the uh, tragedy and the crushing there, he was in what is called a persistent vegetative state for three years. Many of you will know the story. He was able to um, ingest food, pump past liquid food into his stomach, no evidence of consciousness, and in a very controversial and some would say landmark decision, uh, the question of what should be done was taken to the courts and the feeding was withdrawn. And of course, he died some time after that. Now, why do I mention it? Well, for this reason, I myself, in the early 90s, was uh, involved in a meeting which actually featured one or two of the people who had given evidence um, in court in relation to Tony Blend. And I, I had some involvement in it, but I was listening to the previous sessions, and discussion went on like this. There is surely a difference between the moral basis for giving someone nutrition and giving them medical treatment. You should always give them nutrition. You should never, you should always feed, never starve anyone or dehydrate them. Medical intervention is something different. There's a time for that and there's a time for withdrawal. Now there's surely a moral distinction between the basis for feeding and the basis for medical treatment. This is how the discussion is going on. All right, they said, suppose this is the case. Now, tube feeding, is that medical treatment? Well, said people, yes, obviously it is medical treatment. Others said, no, it's not, because as a matter of fact, any competent uh, person who doesn't have medical training can actually exercise that. They can, they can tube feed. 
Oh, no, no, said somebody else. Uh, no, they could do it, but the, tube, the way the tube would, for example, afflict the throat of a person, they wouldn't be able to do that properly. That is medical. And as I listened to this, just, just before I had to speak, actually, at it, uh, I thought to myself, how on earth does one resolve these things? Now, why do I mention this now? It's because we could spend tonight simply on that question. And we still wouldn't have arrived at the wider questions in connection with Tony Bland and persistent vegetative state, a state where the brain stem is still uh, there, but the, the, the higher cortical functions, uh, consciousness, is uh, either absent or not known to be present or whatever. It's a vegetative state. That's how it's described. We couldn't even get to that issue. Uh, if we spent all our time tonight on feeding and uh, medical treatment. And that is only one of a number of bioethical issues. Only one. Let's uh, look at the number of bioethical issues there are. By the way, this is the one... <laughs> this isn't the best slide we get. The word free does not mean you get free copies of this. If I had to recommend any short book... Uh, this is Gilbert Meleander. I'm not sure that's a, quite, quite the correct way to pronounce his name. Bioethics, of Prime of Christians. That's the one I'd recommend. It's, it's fairly short. It's, he's a very, very good thinker, and he accommodates his language uh, to, to people like myself who are amateurs in, the, in many respects anyway, in the world of, certainly in the world of medicine. Uh, and I put him up there. And let me just note some of the things that he talks about under the title of bioethics. So, let's have the first here. Artificial insemination. Is that right or is it wrong? Artificial insemination, uh, the one who's donating the sperm may be a husband, may be a donor who's not a husband or partner or whatever. Under what conditions is that right, if any? Next one, abortion. Well, we all know about that. Next one, genetic engineering. Is it right to manipulate people genetically? Perhaps you might say the word manipulate is already evaluative. We could choose another word. Prenatal screening. You go in and uh, you're pregnant and you're told, well, now let's uh, screen here. And uh, sometimes pregnant women don't realize there are tests being carried out for certain diseases and often you're typically offered an abortion if there are certain diseases. Prenatal screening, ethical issues surrounding that. Next one, assisted suicide. That terminology is used now instead of uh, euthanasia very often, uh, or more strictly physician-assisted suicide. Is that ethical? One more or two more. Organ donation. What about that? Last one, I think. Experiments with the human embryo, embryo experimentation. All those are comprehended and more in bioethics. So quite obviously, uh, I'm not going to be able to tackle that. And you prayed earlier that I should uh, encourage, inspire wisdom. And I hope that, that I'm able to do so, but I'm terribly aware of the limitations. On the other hand, there's a good challenge involved here. Because the question is whether there are certain things, 
certain issues that are pervasive? Uh, is there something that we need to look out for, some things persistently? Is there a framework which Christians can or should adopt when dealing with many or even all of these issues? Now, I think that in approaching questions in bioethics, the whole range of them, we have to be aware of the current Western mindset and often non-Western as well. Because we could ask the question, what is right and what is good in relation to the various bioethical issues? But someone here has asked that question might say, well, as Christians, you like everybody else, are welcome to try to work out what is right and good. In fact, you should do so from your own perspective. But just remember that what you think is right and good is not what others will think is right and good, even if you had a consensus amongst yourselves, which as Christians you don't have anyway. And the question, therefore, is a question of rights. It's the question of the rights of people to follow what they regard as right and good. So even if we were to conclude something of what's right and good, it might be said that really what you've got to tackle is the whole question of human rights in these areas. And rights discourse is dominant. And along with that, there is the widespread claim that even if you believe certain things to be right and good, given the range of human rights the rights of different individuals or groups, then what you cannot do is to impose on a society your particular standpoint in bioethics. And although it's not my job to pursue that question in detail, let me say a quick word about that because it, it contains a fallacy. The word imposition is not any of us, one any of us would probably want to use, but the fact is that if you do use the terminology of imposition, Law imposes something on you in any case. So, uh, supposing I stick to rights language for a minute, then someone says, uh, in relation to abortion, such a live issue right now in Northern Ireland, someone says that the mother has the right to decide. Someone else says that the unborn child has certain rights. Now, the law is going to take some position. The law is going to say, well, it's legitimate to have an abortion up to 12, 18, 24 weeks, whatever, or, or no holds barred, or ban abortion altogether. Law will discriminate against someone. Someone is, someone's views are going to be um, excluded by law. So while being wary of language of position, if Christians do not impose their views, supposing they have a consensus on that or anything else, if Christians do not impose their views, someone's views will be imposed. Even when you try to maximize freedom, the fact of law is already uh, something which is going to exclude. So let's not think that it's a question of you mustn't impose your views Christians, I think, will instinctively not want to impose. In many ways, they'll have a sort of gut feeling that, that actions must be as far as possible freely chosen. Yet, law means that someone loses and someone wins, if you want to talk that conflictual language. Christians don't oppose, someone will. So why should Christians not, if you use that language? 
Now, I've already made a concession there to rights language, and some would say that's the wrong place to start, and I have considerable sympathy. It has been said that the only coherent, that is, holding together, public moral language is that of subjective rights. Morally, it's only one thing on which people publicly seem to agree, which is that humans have rights as individuals or groups. That seems to be the only point of moral agreement, some would say. And the uh, only respected, universally respected right, it has been said, is freedom. And there are Christians who say we should not capitulate to this way of seeing things. We should not allow talk of rights to dominate questions in bioethics or anything else for that matter. Because as far as Christians are concerned, God has established a matrix of divine, natural, and human laws and attached to them objective obligations. So simply to reduce things to rights or to center all our moral talk on rights is already, some would say, from a Christian standpoint, to make a mistake. You can't start with rights. Rights come in there, but they must be embedded in a wider understanding. And it's certainly the case that as Christians, we will want to talk about responsibility in bioethics and not simply rights. Think of what happens if you set up the whole question of uh, abortion in terms of rights. The mother's right, or the woman's right, I'll come to the distinction between woman and mother in a minute, woman's rights and the rights of the unborn child. Is that the way to set up the issue? Is the mother to think in terms of my rights against your rights, I would think of the child's rights against the mother's rights. There's something wrong about that, even if rights talks come into it. There's also responsibility. Rights, ways of relating to people, are not the first and fundamental way, not from a Christian perspective, not from a wider human perspective. Rights questions come into things, but do we want really to be a society that relates morally in rights terms and if, if you talk about mother's rights in the abortion debate instead of women's rights, think of the implications of that. Because if you are a mother, then by definition that which is in the womb is the child. And the mother is not mother to an arm or to a leg or to an eye or to a head. You can only be mother to a person, a human being. I'm collapsing those two terms, person and human being, for a second. I'm not, not taking up issue, uh, sides of the question of abortion for a moment, simply pointing out that the very language of motherhood implies a relational being, deeply relational being. Not my rights versus your rights. But the concept of motherhood is not simple anyway, anymore. As a mother, uh, I may arrange 
for another woman to donate the ovum which another woman will, by some process of fertilization that's happened beforehand, uh, carry in her body. It can be surrogate motherhood, biological and adoptive. I can arrange it all. Who is then the mother? So the concept of motherhood itself is very, very complex. Now, I'm not going to ask whether the church should have a unified vision in terms of bioethics. That is a question of the limits of dissent and of agreement and those things. I want to know whether we can uh, have any general guidance, whether any general guidance is possible about how to approach bioethical issues. Is Is there a method of moral reasoning at all which Christians can try to adopt? Now, I was going to quote here, um, I opened the Bible and didn't, uh, didn't quote it. In terms of rights language, Luke chapter 12, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Jesus being asked to adjudicate on a question of rights. Maybe in a straightforward case, maybe in a complex case, we don't know, but Jesus says, who set me up in that position? That's not my job. People do have that responsibility. It's right. Lawyers should be dealing with those things, but Jesus says, that's not for me. But let me talk to you, not about rights, property rights. Let me talk to you about attitudes. Let me talk to you about something underlying. Be on your guard against possessions. That's the level to which Christians will often operate in bioethics as in other ethical areas. Rather than jumping into right and wrong, right and wrong rights, they will do that. It's important, it's practical, but they will try to start by thinking about underlying attitudes, and I'll be coming to that a bit later. Now, let me apologize. At this stage, I should have had a slide um, which I'd started and inadvertently deleted it instead of completing it. Uh, it's not going to matter very much, but that uh, shows you my technological proficiency, doesn't it? How should we approach bioethical issues in terms of moral reasoning? Well, uh, I am going to take the question of abortion as an example of moral reasoning. Now, I'm aware of two Drawbacks. I'm taking it because it is so prominent right now. And where are two drawbacks? One, I'm a man. And although I've been in a situation where I say, look, everything I say could be said by a woman, so try not to hear my voice, just to hear my words, I have felt I was fighting a losing battle. Just to hear a male voice, particularly maybe with a British accent in Northern Ireland, already gives you the feeling sometimes you're defeated. But I'm saying nothing that could not be said by a woman and said far, far better and more eloquently. Further, as, as I take us through a process of moral reasoning here, or do my best to do that, you may well be frustrated, and I would sympathize with you if you did, because at the end I'll be saying, what is wrong with this? Obviously I won't go through it all if I think it's wrong, but it'll be certainly incomplete. There'll be something missing from it. So I will uh, acknowledge that if you find yourself uneasy as I go along for the reasons which I think you might find yourself uneasy. So let me take this as far as it goes first, acknowledging then the 
uh, inadequacy of it. Well, the first question to ask logically is, with abortion, what precisely is the issue? Three things go into moral reasoning. One is we try to get what the facts are. We try to get what the principles are. We try to reason. So moral reasoning goes on. The facts, the principles, the reasoning. But we have to start, of course, by asking what precisely is at issue? Now, already one might say it's impossible to identify one thing here. But it seems reasonable enough to say that the issue pivots on whether that which is in the womb or the body uh, is human being with human rights. Isn't that, on any analysis, a pivotal question? Doesn't that have to be addressed, however you answer it, and whatever other questions there are? Say a human being with human rights, because rights are relative to stages in the life of a human being. I was talking earlier to my four-year-old granddaughter over um, uh, the, the distance in Kenya, uh, over what's happened. Uh, she's a human being, but she doesn't have a right to vote because her human being does not give her rights that all human beings have. So even if you were to establish that that which is in the body of the mother or the woman is a human being, even if you were to offer that description, it does not follow automatically from that that because of that, that being has the full set of rights that any of us have. It doesn't follow logically Automatically, We might conclude it does, or he or she does. So how do we decide on whether we are looking at human being with human rights? Well, are there any scientific facts at all to help us in our decision? Is there anything which we can regard as neutral? Well, Scientific knowledge, scientific information, of course, uh, develops, changes. But what we know is that the fusion of sperm and ovum, the process of fertilization, uh, creates a new being, genetically complete, may or may not implant but as a new being genetically complete. And what kind of being can that being be except human? Some people talk about uh, the fertilized ovum as a potential human, but how can it be potential human? It's actually something. Actually what? It can only belong under the heading human. It's not a river, it's not a mountain, it's not a lamb, a sheep. Uh, it, it is classified as human being. So there is a, a presumption there that because the being is human, 
Therefore, the being must have the rights that belong to being human. Because although, of course, rights are different stages, hence my reference to my granddaughter, for example, not voting, still the basis of all human rights is the right to life. If you don't have the right to life, you don't have any other rights either. That follows logically, of course. So the presumption, the bias, as it were, the, the, the initial working assumption must be that if scientifically we have reason to say, look, we're dealing with human being here, then the presumption must be that human rights belong to the human being. And even if you don't find that compelling, uh, what makes it other than a reasonable and probable position? Now, uh, Christians will want not simply to proceed on the basis of science, of course. Biblical writers treat that which is in the womb in human terms. Now, people say the biblical writers didn't have our knowledge of biology. That's true, but it's not relevant. What do I mean? What I mean is this, uh, that biblical writers talked about whatever it is that is in the womb. They know that sexual intercourse takes place, that there is birth subsequently, um, and they, lots of stuff they didn't know about so-called fetal wastage, spontaneous abortions, all those things. No, they didn't know those things. But they did know that there's a connection between two things and that God treated as human, from various texts, treated as human that which is in the womb. That is the way they appear to think. So they don't have to know exactly what does happen. They think whatever it is that happens there, whatever is biologically, whatever is scientifically the case, we are looking at some form of human being. That's what seems to be presupposed, although they do not know, of course, that human beings pass out of existence. Very often, uh, before, prior to implantation, huge number uh, never, of course, get to implant. Still, between science and scripture, we may say, look, we're dealing with human being. Okay, so I, I therefore must, as a Christian, surely be prepared to start with a considerable weight on the side of the protection of the unborn embryo on the grounds of its human being, presuming its human rights. But now it's going to say, okay, why would people not offer that protection? And then we have to consider all the different possibilities. For example, the question of the rights of women. Someone might say, well, you've only looked at one side of it. Now let's take another side, the rights of women. Now the question there is, what are the limits of those rights? Do they include the right to dispose of the unborn child, is that part of the rights of a woman? Well, some of us say um, there is the question of uh, fatal, to use language widely used at the moment, fatal fetal abnormality. The horrendous conditions that can sometimes obtain. And some of you will be familiar with, uh, the, most of you will be familiar, no doubt, with anencephaly, for example, quite an extreme form. It is an extreme form of abnormality. So the question there is, all right, under those conditions, can we take such a life? What is the limit of what is permissible? 
can we treat the unborn child in a way different from the born child? With born child, the intuitions of most Westerners, although this is changing, I think, is that once a child is born, whatever the condition, you cannot actually directly slay. You cannot actually kill. You might withhold treatment without effect for certain reasons, but you don't directly take the life of a born infant. That is the widespread Western intuition. So the question arises of what makes the unborn status different from the born. Is it the fact that there is an attachment to the mother? Does the mother rights, mother rights kick in at that stage? What about the situation of rape? With, uh, with different, uh, um, such different perspectives within a culture, let alone between cultures. I was involved with the PCI, uh, a document on abortion presented to the General Assembly about three years or so ago. And a message came through to me from um, a woman whom I now know, I don't know her well, but I now know her a little bit. But she was very close to someone I was very close to as well, so that was our contact. She had been uh, raped and become pregnant as a result of rape. She was in Malawi. She pleaded with me to tell the General Assembly not to advocate abortion in the case of rape. She said, why should the innocent child have to pay as well? And I've already been violated once in rape. I don't want the abortion to violate me again. No, that's one person, and I was commissioned the task of, not in my own name, but in hers, um, sharing it. Now, it is not for me to say, well, of course, that's what we all should all think. How on earth can I speak on behalf of raped women? That would be a horrendous thing to do. And others will speak very, very differently. But it was a reminder that what can seem self-evident in one culture sometimes is self-evident in the other direction in another culture, Malawi and Britain. And I'm talking about majority in Britain and majority in Malawi. There are Malawians and there are Brits who think differently from other Malawians and other Brits. But I think we can recognize in that something culturally a little bit different from what we are used to. So I begin with the bias and presumption in favor of the um, child, and I'm going to move on quickly from abortion, uh, to lining up those reasons that may overthrow our original assumption that the child is the, un the human being is, protect is entitled to protection. Now, listening to this, you might have two objections. You might say, you've got us exactly nowhere. In the end, all you've done is tell us what the arguments are. We knew them in any case, and you got us nowhere. Well, to show we got nowhere, we'd have to work through the actual issues. All I'm talking about is the way of working through issues. Initial presumption, can it be overthrown by different things? Then you have to look at the different angles. So to, whether or not I, get, I haven't got you anyway in a short time, I know, but... We don't have to work through the different, different issues, but it is our responsibility to work through them. But the second thing, difficulty you might have, is this. That this all is an exercise in a relatively abstract reasoning. It has its place, perhaps, but it 
cuts out the whole realm, not of women's rights, but of women's experience and stories. To get at the truth of these things, you cannot simply employ a logical method of approach, as I have done. And that's what I had in mind when I said earlier, you might be frustrated when you hear me. Uh, You actually have to listen to stories. And I believe very, very strongly indeed in that. Human experience has got a factor into it. But then, of course, you'll hear different stories as well. The story will not solve. It is the way people approach it very often. It's the way positions are publicized rather than out there in the public square, rather than abstract reasoning. The way I've done things is not the way things are carried out in the public square. It is done more by story. But if you look at the stories or hear of them, you say, well, has that advanced us very much? Except to confirm some people in conviction that different people have different stories, and the story will get you nowhere in that respect. But again, one would have to look at those stories and examine them and ask whether some actually have greater strength to them than others. Where does this leave us? It leaves us with a corporate task as a church. We need a wisdom which involves the whole of the body of Christ. A theologian cannot possibly, and what an arrogant thing it would be to assume otherwise, cannot possibly think that by theological reasoning that we get to the answers. Pure and simple, as it were. Theological reasoning is something which we all have to do as Christians together. So the professional theologian has her or his job there But we need a corporate wisdom where we hear from all sides, from all persons in the body of Christ. And even when there is less in Scripture on a certain issue than we might think there is in relation to abortion, we might think that there is biblical data which can be applied to the question of abortion. Uh, Whereas if it comes to something like um, genetic engineering or uh, Screening, um, you might say, well, where are we going to get biblical stuff for that? Still, there are theological principles that one can think through, I think. But we have to incorporate the biblical wisdom into the life of the whole body of the people of God in order for us to get anywhere with bioethics in our time. It can only be a church discussion. And we need, and as my time is going, I'm um, moving towards a conclusion here, we need, I think, to have a framework which has four um, factors in it. So let's put up the first here. Spurgeon talked about... Bibline blood. I think he made up the word Bibline. We must together be so um, immersed in Scripture that intuitions begin to develop. Intuitions are not infallible. But most of us, with so many things to do and so many decisions to take, have to live our lives by intuitions. We can't 
work out everything by logical processes of reasoning at all. This is a, a very telling verse in Hebrews where the author talks about those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, by constant practice. We will not have insight into bioethical issues which are complex if we have not discerned in other areas of life where things may be much more morally straightforward if we haven't discerned what the truth is and if we don't follow obediently. If I am not obedient to what I know to be right, how can I expect illumination on complex issues? So I think that as a church, as an individual, certainly as a church, we need to train ourselves um, morally so that we begin, begin to develop intuitions that are good and true and sound. They're not conclusive proofs, but they, they're inclinations. We begin to bend a certain way in our ways of thinking. That's the first thing we need. But with the churches so divided and we are so disobedient, the word of God is scarce. And maybe there is the confusion of language uh, found in Babel. Maybe that afflicts us well as well across the churches. The second thing we need is a cultural sensitivity, cultural understanding, to understand the centrality of autonomy and to think critically about that. John Wyatt is a very, very fine author. In fact, his book on matters of life and death, I'd recommend, I think, first and foremost, because it's longer than Melander's. I put Melander's down, but... Wyatt's book, Matters of Life and Death, second edition, 2009, is a superb book, I think. And he talks, uh, he, he was a uh, practicing doctor and um, an ethical thinker too, and he talks about the way in which in culture he's witnessed a dramatic shift. And he gives as an example what's happened in the question of assisted suicide and euthanasia. He said, when I first wrote this, he said this in 2009, when I first wrote this book, and the first edition was 1998, when I first wrote this book, the case for euthanasia was on the grounds of compassion. People suffered horribly. And people said, how can you possibly, as Christians or anybody else, justify um, denying euthanasia to people in such horrible suffering? John Wyatt, himself a deeply sensitive person as well as a very good physician, um, John Wyatt said that 10 years on, it's not the compassion argument that people run so often, it's autonomy. It is right. I have a right to decide. And it extends beyond suffering. You know, I have a right to dispose of my life when, how I want. If I find it meaningless and empty, even though I've got no clinical condition that is serious at all or any at all, I have an absolute right to dispose of it. That's the shift he's seen. And it's so deeply embedded in our culture that that's what we have to reflect on. So apart from all the particular bioethical issues, the whole question of autonomy, of being a law to myself, that has to be uh, thought through. Because as Christians we believe, and there are plenty of non-Christians who believe, that we are relational beings. We are not 
autonomous as humans. We are relational in our core, essentially. Thirdly, uh, let's move on to third here. We have to ask about the ethics of the medical profession. Because in requesting euthanasia, for example, I'm not simply exercising an autonomous um, impulse or whatever, right? I am saying that the medical profession is obligated in some way because euthanasia is the action of another. Physician-assisted suicide changes uh, the angle a little bit. Even so, physician-assisted, what I'm saying is that there is a responsibility on the part of others to assist me. So these are not autonomous actions. They involve the whole cadre, the whole um, group of physicians. And this is where um, Hippocrates uh, comes in because Hippocrates, a pagan long before uh, Christ, and of course outside the Jewish milieu, um, Hippocrates remarkably... um, came up and his disciples with certain values which they thought of fundamental medicine for the medical profession. We will not abort, they said, we will not perform euthanasia. That is our professional ethic. And it's important for whatever ethic physicians do have, and I'm not going to directly argue for those at the moment, but it's important for physicians to have a professional ethic because People need to be able to trust the physicians have their codes of conduct. And uh, I could uh, amplify that, but time is going, so I won't. Um, the fourth one, don't float it on yet, leave it for a moment. The fourth is that we have to keep in mind what a huge difference it makes to believe in a life beyond this one. I hope no one, I'm sure no one here, will ever think that because we believe in life beyond this, this life doesn't matter. I don't think that's going to be a problem in uh, Fitzroy. That's great. So we need to be more this worldly than otherworldly uh, than we have been uh, in many, many ways. But it makes a huge difference to believe there's something beyond this because you don't believe then that the whole of human life is determined by happiness and the health and the independence and the dignity which you obtain this side of the grave. If human life is about my happiness, my health, my independence, my dignity, my right to choose, and there's nothing beyond, then that generates very different attitudes in bioethics from the Christian position which holds that health is precious, human dignity is given by the hand of God, but that there is more, that suffering is not the last word, death is not the last word, that we are not designed simply for this life at all. That makes a huge difference. So those are four areas in which I think we have to to um, keep alert, as it were, keep our eye on all these, the way they pervade uh, bioethical discussions. Well, I could say much more, but won't, and uh, we'll stop there, Steve, and have time to tease out in practical ways, I dare say, some of these things.